0: Welcome to podcast episode seventy-seven. Great to have you. Thanks for, um, thanks for listening in. So, uh, for our our topic, our, our subject uh, this go round, I want to talk a little bit about what I think is happening on the national scene. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to credit this to the president as an example of him playing uh, chess in the seventeenth dimension. I don't. I don't know that this is something that he's doing or not, but it's it's, and I'm not prepared to af- affirm that at all. But I do believe that it's happening, and I do believe that it's uh, involves uh, the president very much. And that's, I think we're going through a process of national creative disruption, national creative disruption. Sometimes good things come out of very real disasters. And by every objective measure, the disaster is not something you would have volunteered for, but something very, very good came out of it. So uh, here's an example. Um, When the Japanese attacked us at Pearl Harbor, as it happened, our battleships were in port and our aircraft carriers were at sea. And, um, And because of this, uh, because we sustained such heavy losses with our battleships, that affected the strategy that was undertaken by our admirals for the next war. But admirals are like generals. They like to fight the last war. They like to they, they like to utilize the technology or the weaponry that they have, that they're accustomed to, and so on. And if the times have shifted under your feet, uh, sometimes you go out there to fight the last war, and you discover that what you're doing isn't anywhere near good enough. And because our battleships, um, battleships being the previous uh, apex predator uh, in the previous wars, um, were diminished or taken out, uh, it shifted, our strategy shifted to aircraft carriers. Well, that was a necessary move. And it's the kind of necessary move that we might not have um, taken had uh, something different happened at Pearl Harbor. Um, imagine a company that is about to go, you know, it, it's going to go belly up in five years. It, it's its going to be swallowed up by all its competitors in five years because they're so set in their ways and they won't adjust anything. And, and you might think, you know, about the only thing that's going to save this company is uh, is if the bubonic plague sweeps through headquarters and takes out all the senior management and then they have to, you have to appoint some uh, new people and the new people are idiots, but they don't they're going to make mistakes, but they're not going to make the old mistakes. They're not going to make the mistakes that, that would put the company under. Well, I think that something like that is happening on our national scene. What's happening is all the old rules for how you get along, how you get taken out, how how you uh, how you are managed, how you are staged managed. None none of those things work on Donald Trump, and uh, this does not make um, this does not make Donald Trump a fine fellow. This does not mean that I want him to be made our Sunday school superintendent. It just means that the for whatever reason he he's got an immunity. To some of the toxins that are are used to poison all the previous czars, all all the all the previous rulers can be taken out with these poisons, and for some reason he's immune, and they, it just doesn't work on him. And that has thrown Washington D.C. into a state of consternation, and everything is having to be revisited. Everything is having to be, be overlooked, and and if someone says this uh, creative destruction. That means I'm not I'm not denying the destructive part. You know, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, they sank our battleships. That's not a good thing. And and I'm so this is not uh, not denying the destructive part. Um, but we have to remember that people are agents, and when destructive things happen, uh, there are opportunities created for people you didn't anticipate coming along and taking advantage of those new opportunities, which opportunities would not have been there had this disruption not happened. So when I'm looking at the current administration and I'm current looking at what's, what's currently going on, there are things that I'm uh, very happy about. I'm very happy about the, uh, the steady drumbeat appointment of conservative judges. And that's sort of an old school, that's not a creative disruption thing at all. That's just a that's just a good thing as measured by the old calculus. But there are other things, like the relationship between the president and the press, the president and the media, the relationship between between the president and the deep state or the intelligence agencies. Um, that's where the creative disruption is occurring. And I think it's, I think it's really disruptive. I think it's really destructive, and I think it's really, really good.. God. God. Here we are, podcast episode 77. Here's my book review. Um, I just recently turned in a manuscript to Canon Press for a commentary on the Book of Revelation. and uh, which is a great deal of fun to do. Um, I, as part of the fly leaf in the front, I I comment, G.K. Chesterton said that uh, St. John the Divine saw many strange monsters in, in his vision, but none so strange as any one of his own commentators. Um, Ambrose Bierce in the Devil's Dictionary said, um, the apocalypse, the revelation, is a book in which uh, St. John concealed all that he knew. Uh, the revealing is done by the commentators, he said, who know nothing. Uh, so, um, the book of Revelation is famously obscure, right? It's famously difficult. We're not used to the apocalyptic style of writing. We're not accustomed to that genre. What do we do with it? And and there are so many competing uh, interpretations, so many competing understandings, and whatnot. Uh, so I'm I'm a postmillennialist. I'm a uh, uh, meaning that I believe that the gospel is going to be victorious over time in history and the world will be Christianized. I'm also a preterist, which means that the for the bulk of the book of Revelation, I believe that um, the all but the last uh, couple of chapters, basically, were fulfilled prior to 70 AD um, in the first century. So I believe that the book of Revelation was not written later, not not written in the 90s, but was written prior to 70 A.D., and I believe that it's talking about basically the replacement of the old Jerusalem, the harlot, uh, with the new Jerusalem, who's coming down out of heaven, uh, arrayed as a bride for her husband. So that's I'm I'm a postmillennialist. I'm a preterist. That's my basic uh, outlook. And as I've as I've studied this subject over the years, I've read many books and and uh, Worked through many books on this topic. Uh, I've probably learned the most about eschatology from uh, uh, Ken Gentry. Uh, he shall have dominion, and some of his uh, uh, and his book on uh, before Jerusalem fell, on the dating of Revelation. And Ken Gentry has got a commentary on Revelation that's not out yet. I, w- I wish it had been. Uh, if um, if it had been, I certainly would have used it uh, as I was uh, doing my work on on the Book of Revelation. But I'm, I'm here to, so I've read a bunch of books on, on this topic and so on, but I want to, the book I wanted to review for you um, is the book I found most helpful as I was, as I was doing my work on the book of um, Revelation. Incidentally, my commentary is going to be called The Sound of Many Waters, The Sound of Many Waters. But the book I found most helpful is edited by a gent named Steve Gregg, and the name of his book is Revelation Four Views. And this, what this uh, this this book is just simply a magnificent book. There are four basic takes on the book of Revelation. There are four basic interpretive schools. Now, if you wanted to parse them out, you could probably come up with hundred and four different takes on the book of Revelation. But there are four, in uh, painting with a broad brush, there are four basic um, schools of thought on how the book of Revelation should be handled. Uh, they are the historicist position, the preterist position, the futurist position, and the spiritualist position. Uh, let me just define those and then uh, describe this book for you. Uh, the historicist position is the, uh, is the view that says the book of Revelation is a, a prophecy of the unfolding of all of church history so view the book of revelation as being given in the first century and all of church history is rolled up at your feet like a carpet and then you unroll the carpet down through history and in this part of revelation you can see the rise of the papacy and in this part of revelation you can see the reformation in the book of revelation you can see the uh, the reformation and so on so a historicist is someone who thinks that the book of Revelation is predicting uh, in a sustained, contiguous way all of church history? Um, that's the historicist view. The um, almost no one today. This was um, this was the, probably the received approach among the reformers, um, but almost no. Uh, scholar of any rank today holds to it, but there are still vestiges of this uh, view. Some of the um, a number of historicist books are still in print, and there's a vestige of this view in among in among dispensationalists, where they take the seven churches at the beginning of the book, and each one of those um, churches represents a church age, There's the age of Philadelphia, the age of Laodicea, and the age of Smyrna, and so on. That that's a that's a historicist. Um, Uh, cubbyhole within a futurist framework. So historicism basically thinks that Revelation predicts all of church history in a sustained way. The preterist um, uh, view, and this is the view I hold, the preterist view, uh, and it comes from the Latin word for past, um, uh, the preterist believes that the book of Revelation was predicting the future at when the revelation was given But it was John's future, and it's our distant past. So let's say, uh, let's say the Book of Revelation is given to John in the 60s AD, and he's predicting the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That's 10 years in his future and 2,000 years in our past. So preterists look for fulfillments in the first century. So the they they think it's Predictive prophecy uh, in the future from the time of the prophecy, but in our distant past. So, um, the the five heads, the 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 beast with seven heads, uh, the seven heads are seven hills, which would be the cities, the hills of Rome, uh, and there are also seven kings. Five were, one is. Well, Caesar Augustus, uh, Caesar, Julius Caesar, Caesar Augustus down, and down to the sixth, who is who is Nero, and so. Uh, the preterist identifies um, these fulfillments in the first century. The futurist is someone who believes that John was predicting something in his distant future and in our probably imminent future. So the futurist holds that the book of Revelation is not yet fulfilled. Uh, the book of Revelation is, is yet to be fulfilled. So that's um, historicist, all of church history in a continuous way, preterist. Uh, the history of the church and Israel and Rome in the first century. Um, The futurist position is that uh, it's a prediction of what's going to come to pass at the end of the world, still in our future. And then the fourth school of thought is the spiritualist, sometimes called the idealist, the spiritualist um, view. And uh, take this view as um, the view that says it's not—it doesn't have any literal earthly fulfillment, but take it as a giant parable in the sky. So uh, this is uh, um, this is a a gaudy and flamboyant and highly colored parable that describes the conflict of good and evil, the way the bad guys persecute the church, etc. So it's more parabolic than it is. Um, predictive prophecy. So those are the four views historicist, preterist, futurist and spiritualist. Now what this book does and this is just a this was a mag, in, in my view a magnificent achievement what Steve Gregg did was he takes a passage he, he just works through the book of Revelation, passage by passage, just a few verses at a time. he'll take a section, let's say 10 verses. Quotes that passage, and then in four parallel columns, he gives you, he cites multiple commentators from each one of those four schools of thought. So going from left to right, historicist, and then preterist, and then futurist, and then spiritualist. And you read in four columns all the different things that all these different commentators have said about this passage that you just read. I'm a preterist, and I'm a convinced preterist, and I'm a postmillennialist, and if I step back and look at the futurist or the spiritualist or the uh, historicist thing, taken, you know, looking at them from fifty yards, let's be honest. Between us, girls, I think I I think those other views are um, crazy. But reading through all of the comments that these different commentators from all these different schools made about the text, I was I won't say I was as frequently blessed by observations made by um, uh, adherence to these other schools. Uh, blessed, learn something. Oh, that's really in the text. That's really good. Um, I I won't say that I was as blessed by the other schools of thought as I was by the the one that lined up with what I thought. But I will say almost. I was frequently taught, frequently instructed, frequently blessed by futurists and by historicists and by spiritualists. There were a lot of good things in this book. Uh, So, if you want to um, uh, be firmly uh, settled in your views on the book of Revelation and you want to do it in a way that really does justice and gives the other schools of thought a genuinely fair shake, I can't recommend any book higher than this particular book, Revelation, Four Views, edited by Steve Gregg. So we come now to our Hamartiology section, podcast episode 77. And uh, the word is Andropodistes. Um, and this is rendered as Manstealer by the King James Version. Its one occurrence is in First 1 Timothy 1.10, and it's clustered in with a number of other sins. Uh, it would, of course, have reference to kidnapping. If someone's a man-stealer, then they're a kidnapper, whether for ransom or any other purpose. Kidnapping someone to sell him was a grievous sin and a crime in the Old Testament. And kidnapping someone for sale as a slave, uh, kidnapping an Israelite for sale as a slave, uh, even carried the death penalty with it, ex- Exodus twenty one. 16. So, man-stealing was a big deal, Old Testament and New Testament. And this word would also, therefore, include anyone operating at the headwaters of a slave trade. So, the New Testament talks about how you deal with um, someone who's been a slave for generations. If you're the great-great-grandson of a slave and you were born into slavery and you become a Christian, um, Colossians and Ephesians and 1 Timothy tell you how to behave uh, as a slave, and you subvert the institution. There, you subvert the institution of slavery by honest, conscientious, dutiful work. But the fact remains that um, the slave trade is an iniquitous practice and cannot be sustained uh, apart from iniquity at the font iniquity at the you you can't you can't have slaves to sell unless somebody captured them unless somebody took them unless someone kidnapped them and um, it's utterly contrary to sound doctrine you've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor douglas wilson This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.